You know, one of the things that uh, is such a blessing here at Fellowship are the wide range of deacons that we have and the way that our deacons faithfully serve in leading uh, different areas of ministry here at Fellowship. And speaking of our deacons uh, and speaking of Bobby, Bobby is, have, has officially entered the process of being considered as a deacon of global mission. And so uh, we are in the process of now opening up for feedback. If you have any um, you know, uh, feedback, encouragement, concerns, if you would email the elders and let us know, it's just a great way for us to uh, discern as we continue in this process. But we are excited about Bobby as we've gotten to know him and hear his heart. And we're excited to uh, see where God would lead us as he steps into this role. Well, guys, it's good to be with you. Man, uh, happy Sunday. You know, as I was thinking about our time together in Daniel this morning, um, I was reminded of a time a number of years ago. Uh, before she passed, Tammy was actually working for an ecotourism company. And as a part of that work, every once in a while, uh, you would win a trip. And we were selected from among her team to be among those who went to check out some hotels in the Central American country of Belize. Poor us, right? And so here we are, we're in Belize, we're checking out these different areas, but my favorite had to be this remote jungle lodge we went to in the middle of the jungle. Here's a picture of it behind us. And you got this, you got this little casita that was in the middle of this area with this large field that you'll see that lay between you and the main dining room. And I mean, when I say rustic, I mean rustic. Let me give you an example. You could only shower between the hours of four and six because that's when they would burn the coconut husks in order to heat the water. But the thing that caught me more than any other about this place was while we were there at night, we would have our headlamps and we would come down those fields and we would see the most stunning blue sapphires. I mean, they were gorgeous. They twinkled everywhere across the ground. I was like, what is this? So the first night we go, and I'm like, this is crazy. Second night we go out, and it's as if there's even more of them, and they're even brighter. So we go down to dinner that night, and I ask the fellow who managed the lodge, tell me the story. What's up with the sapphires? I mean, I had run all kinds of theories in my head that maybe the sapphires were you know, uh, ancient Mayan artifacts, or uh, maybe uh, these sapphires were just some natural geological formation. So I was kind of surprised when I asked, and he said, sapphires? Sapphires. And I could see his wheels kind of turning, and then something clicked. And he said, oh, oh, the sapphires. Okay, here's what I want you to do tonight. When you go back to your room, I want you to take your headlamp. I want you to find one of those sapphires. I want you to get as close as you possibly can, and what you're going to see will rock your world. I'm like, dude, this is going to be incredible. So sure enough, we leave dinner and we go back to our room. I find the brightest sapphire that I can find in the field. I crouch down close. I zoom in, and this is what stared back at me. They were tarantulas. They were tarantula eyes. I mean, the scream that was heard in the jungle that day, I'm sure the animals still haven't seen anything like it. You know, and as I was thinking of that story this week, what I was reminded is that in many ways, as human beings, we go on a journey of life looking for sapphires only while we're staring at spiders. 
You know, the human condition tells us that we know how the world works. We spin huge yarns of possibilities about what matters most in life. And yet, one of the beautiful invitations of Scripture is to come to the beautiful reality of God's greatness and our humility before him. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the greatest dangers that has faced the human condition is not the threats of war and violence, though those are real. Their origin come back to a dangerous little thing that we call pride. And as we look at the story that we'll look at today in the book of Daniel, we find the story of a king who was so confident in his pride. He thought he knew how the world works and with devastating consequences. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up with me to the book of Daniel. We'll read Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has beginning in verse 10 and running through verse 17. So as we prepare, would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, even as we come to the study of your word, we confess you are God and we are not. God, I, I thank you that the power of your word lie not in, in the speaker, it lie not in um, cunning of thought or human wisdom, it lie in the faithfulness of God in the presence of the Spirit who stand behind it. And so, God, we pray that as we look at your word today, that you would write it on our hearts, that you would free us, that you would guide us, that you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen? Amen. Let's read together. Beginning in verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. In the visions of my head, I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip all the leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and acts over and sets over it the lowliest of men. Ooh. You know, as we continue on this morning in the book of Daniel, you might, be, you might recall that we're calling this series The Unshakable Kingdom. Uh, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the story of this prophet who is carried off into captivity along with many of the nobility of the house of Israel into the land of Babylon. There, as Daniel and his friends are carried off, they find themselves victims of human trafficking, sexual exploitation, and they find themselves in a place where literally it seems like the world as they know it has fallen apart at the seams. Contrast to that, the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. 
And as he looks at the different successes and accomplishments that he had achieved, we'll learn that he, he boasts in a prideful arrogance, look what I've done, look how awesome I am, look how amazing my great accomplishments are. Only to be confronted with the perilous poison of pride. In fact, I'm convinced that King Nebuchadnezzar serves as a powerful example for each of us. And today, we're going to dive in a little deeper to this vision and this story of a man who is blinded by his own confident arrogance and pride. You know, throughout this book, we've been suggesting you that the theme of the book of, the Dan- of, of Daniel is that in all, God's above all. This idea that God stands above every nation, every ruler, every king that has ever existed. And in this passage, what we'll be reminded of is God is the sovereign king over every other king. You know, though, if I had to put that in more basic terms, I would simply say this, that God's message to King Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm convinced to us as well, is simply this. Life isn't about you. Life isn't about you. And as we look at that reality today, it becomes a powerful opportunity to to look at and consider the presence of pride, even in our own lives. You know, as we begin and we're reintroduced to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the nation of Babylon. And uh, as this passage opens up, I mean, we almost want to cheer because it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. In verse 1, he talks about uh, peace to all that dwell in the earth. And then beginning in verse 2, he makes this powerful declaration. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You know, one of the debates that rages among scholars around this passage is, did Nebuchadnezzar come to faith and to an understanding of who the one true God is? And I'll be honest, as I look at the arguments on, the, on both sides, I'm not sure we really know. I mean, on one hand, this is the moment where Nebuchadnezzar finally seems to get it right. He makes this confession of who God is, and yet if you look across the book of Daniel, what you'll see is a pattern of Nebuchadnezzar making these similar kinds of statements. You might remember that when Daniel reveals to him the meaning of the, of the giant statue and the vision of the different nations, Nebuchadnezzar says, praise be to God. But what do we see in the next chapter? He sets up a giant gold image for everyone else to bow down and worship. By the way, remember that that image that he builds up, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Refused to bow down to him is one of solid gold. The reason why that's significant is you might recall that in the vision we saw in the chapter before, Babylon was represented as a head of gold. It has led many scholars to believe that what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is, yes, God sees my kingdom as just being one among many. But this image of gold that he builds is his radical statement that, nope, it is my dominion, my kingship that will rule forever. Then, as you go into the end of chapter 3, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as Levi reminds us, Rakshak and Benny, refused to bow down to this giant image, they find themselves thrown into a fiery furnace. 
only not to be consumed, but to see a fourth person with them in the fire. And again, Nebuchadnezzar cries out, praise be to God who has delivered you out of his hand. And yet, even as we come into this chapter, we see the story of a king who on one hand says something and on the other hand does something very different. And you know, this week I found myself wrestling with this question of, okay, where is Nebuchadnezzar? And the more that I sat in that tension, the more that I began to realize maybe the real question is, where am I? Because isn't that the honest reality of each of our relationship with pride? We know what the right answer is. We know that God is God and we are not. And yet the temptation of the human condition is that we constantly come back to the place where we think that it's all about us. In fact, if you want to know how pervasive this issue really is, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, The Idols of Money, Sex, and Power, makes a statement that sends shivers down my spine. And he basically says this, that in a church, you will often find a support group for virtually every sin, except for greed and pride. Isn't that interesting? In fact, if you study church history, one of the things that you will find is that again and again, the church has recognized that the mother of all sins, the fountainhead from which all other sin and destruction flow, is pride. It's pride. And far from being the struggle of a king thousands of years ago, pride is a battle that we each face on a daily basis. In fact, we get an insight into Nebuchadnezzar's pride as we skip down to verse 4. Because we see the context of uh, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying when he says, look, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar was in a place where he looked and said, look, I've made it. I'm a success. I'm good. And God interrupts him with this vision. You know, as I was looking at those words this week, I was reminded of the warning that God gives the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy Chapter 6, verse 10, shortly after that famous prayer known as the Shema. And he says, beginning in verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, catch this, then take care, lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear, him you shall serve, And by his name, you shall swear. Friends, oftentimes where pride begins to take root in our lives is when we begin to think that it's all about us. That when we think that the destiny and the direction of our life is ultimately set by our own accomplishments, our own wisdom, and our own success. And it's in that context that God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream because he knows of the powerful danger of pride. You know, though, as we talk about pride, I think it's important to define our terms. And so what then exactly is pride? And I would simply offer this definition, that pride is the attitude that successes and failures of this life 
are the result of my performance rather than God's faithfulness. And can I say here, pride can find as much expression in a shy self-rejection as it can in boastful arrogance. Both are two sides of the same coin that say what will shape the direction of my life is my ability to perform, my ability to impress others, my ability to accomplish the things that are important to me. And as this passage will continue, not only will God give Nebuchadnezzar a dream that invites him into some powerful self-reflection, I believe it's one that speaks so importantly to us today. And so secondly, I want to move into this idea of this vision itself, uh, this warning that Nebuchadnezzar receives uh, through this dream, this disturbing dream. Now, before we do that, I want to take a step back and talk about what's going on literarily at this point in the passage. You might recall a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 2, I suggest to you that this section beginning in chapter 2 and running through the end of chapter 7 is an interesting section of Scripture because it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And its structure is one that scholars call a chiasm. Uh, a chiasm is essentially a literary tool that's used in the ancient world as a way of mirroring ideas in order to bring out emphasis. And you'll notice that over the next two weeks, as we come to the center of the chiasm, we come to the heart of what this entire section has been about, which is the response that our hearts have to God's dominion and rule over our lives. We're going to see the example of two kings and the responses to the reality of God's rule. And so with that in mind, let's dive into this vision itself. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of a giant tree. And this tree is huge. In fact, it's so great that all the birds of the air come and live under it. All the animals come and rest under its branches. It's filled with fruit. It is abundant. Until a watcher, an angelic figure shows up and commands that the tree should be cut down. And not only that it should be cut down, did you catch how thoroughly it is to be destroyed? Its leaves are to be stripped. Its branches are to be cut down. Its fruit are to be destroyed. And then uh, the one who's represented is to walk around like a wild animal, eating the grass of the field, losing his sanity and clarity, all of his confident assertion that he knows how the world works, he realizes that he is little more than a wild animal before a holy God. And then we find this powerful warning in verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. In fact, you're going to see that phrase repeated three different times within this passage. It's God telling the why behind what we're saying here. And he's saying that what's going to take place is going to take place so that the king and the world know that the one who ultimately pulls the strings of how the world works is God and God alone. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he panics. He calls on Daniel. He knows the, the 
the significance and the importance of this dream. And so he invites Daniel to um, give an interpretation to it. And what's interesting is Daniel's response. In fact, if we had more time this morning, I would love to dive into Daniel's response because it is one of the most profound examples of speaking the truth in love um, that I've read in a long time throughout Scripture. But there we're told in verse 19 that Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and not Belshazzar, by the way, we'll meet that guy next week, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel's compassion is pouring through even for the king. And by the way, can we talk about the one that he is feeling this compassion for? It's the same one that was responsible for his exploitation and trafficking. The forgiveness and grace that is pouring out in this statement is stunning. But he knows there's no mistake. That the tree that was seen is Nebuchadnezzar himself. That God is going to take the kingdom out of his hand and uh, so thoroughly destroy the kingdom that there will be little left. And Nebuchadnezzar will find himself wandering around like a wild beast in the field. But it's interesting because Daniel does something very powerful in verse 27. He gives advice to the king. I mean, think about this for a second. Daniel, a eunuch from an imprisoned people, is giving advice to the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. And listen to what he says. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You know, as I sat in Daniel's words and advice to the king this week, I realized that in those words are some powerful tools and resources for diagnosing the problem of pride in our own life and responding in humility and brokenness before God. Notice uh, that the first symptom of pride that he reveals is he says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Can I suggest to you that one of the signs of how deep the problem of pride goes in our life is marked by the degree to which we are more concerned with self-protection than advancing God's kingdom. You know, one of the things that marks pride is that its primary focus is how do I protect the things that are important to me? How do I protect a name for myself? How do I hold on uh, to the things that are important to me? In fact, scholars have noted that the anxiety that so often marks our age is because of the messages that call us back to self-focus again and again in the world today. You know, college students, I was thinking about you this week as I was looking at this section thinking, you know, you are in a season of life when you literally have your entire life ahead of you. The possibilities and the dreams of what the world is going to hold, uh, literally, there are so many options. And can I suggest to you that one of the greatest places of freedom and life that you will find is that when you recognize that the one who is walking the pathway of your life is not just marked in your own hard work and effort, 
but the faithfulness of one who has prepared good works beforehand so that you would walk in them. And can I tell you, how tragic would it be? And I've watched, even as I look back in my own life, moments that I have wasted so much time pursuing the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. And I tell you, don't make the same mistake. Every moment, can you live in the confidence that God is up to something beautiful? And as you live in submission and joy to him, watch as he does something beautiful in and through your life. You know, in his book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, uh, William Law gives us a couple of tools that I think are helpful for seeing the depth of this self-focus in our life. He basically suggests two things. Number one, there can be no sure proof of the presence of pride when you say, hey, I'm sufficiently humble. If you're in a place in your journey where you're like, no, I got humility locked down. <laughs> can I suggest to you, that's one of the first warnings that a pride has a grip on your heart. But it was the second uh, that I found myself really reflecting on this week. If you want to find out how prideful you are or how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people stump me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? When we are disregarded by others, does that create in us a sense of indignation? And if it does, where is that coming from? I mean, if it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, didn't Christ live that very kind of experience? I mean, you think about it. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Scripture calls us to do things like to count other people as more important than ourselves. And this week, I couldn't help but be confronted with the places in my own life where, man, I got so much more growing to do in this area of pride. But can I suggest to you that here in Daniel's advice, there's a second thing that we ought to look at, and it's this. One of the things that will mark the presence of pride in our life is a growing indifference to the needs of others. Notice that Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar is to cast off his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. You know, one of the things that will mark the presence of pride in our journey is that we could care less about what's going on in the lives of other people. You know, as I was thinking about the different dimensions of this this week, I was reminded that how we tip, what we do with the grocery cart, what grocery line we get into, our attitude towards the people who inconvenience us, all are saying something about how great of a grip pride may have on our lives. In fact, can I say this, that one of the growing signs of spiritual maturity is an increasing willingness to be inconvenienced that another may know the love and the grace and the mercy of God. I hate that. I want the short line at Costco, <laughs> not the long line. 
And yet, can I say that there are fewer places where you will see the brokenness of human nature more clearly than the way people surround samples at Costco? (laughs) (laughs) This advice is is so powerful. And uh, what's going to happen is we're going to realize that Nebuchadnezzar disregards uh, this call. And therefore, he comes face to face with the devastating consequences of pride. In verse 34, we're told at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted... Oh, I'm sorry, skipping ahead here. Uh, so we're told in verse 28 that all of, Nebuch- all of this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Oh, is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Guys, just a year prior, he has this dream that absolutely disturbs him. And less than a year later, he's, look, look, look how amazing I am. Man, I'm a self-made man. I'm awesome. And instantly, a voice comes from heaven and the judgment of God comes against him. And there, God tells him that the kingdom is departed from him. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar, in verse, uh, in verse, okay, I need better glasses. In verse 33, that immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. What, one of the debates that rages here is what exactly happened You know, some have even used this passage to suggest that, well, there are werewolves in the Bible. No, there are not werewolves in the Bible. Let's just end that one right now. Because not only is Nebuchadnezzar transformed into one who literally loses his sanity. In fact, there's a diagnosed condition known as lycanthropy that um, carries out this kind of attitude. But we're told that he is literally brought low to a place where he is incapable of thinking for himself. He's incapable of living in his right mind. The king who called the shots of the entire world is brought low to a place where he is desperately dependent on the provision and the grace of God. And this goes on for seven years. By the way, as an aside, I think many of us know the stories of people who have followed the path of pride to their own destruction. In fact, I would even say there are a few things that rob us of our humanity than the pursuit of pride and the place where it leads. And then in verse 34, after seven years have passed, Nebuchadnezzar finally comes to his senses. We're told that he lifts his eyes towards heaven, that his reason returns to him, that he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lived forever. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled to this point where he recognizes that God is God and he is not. And one of the things that I found myself praying as I read this passage this week is, oh God, let me learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience and not by personal experience. And then he ends in verse 37 by making this powerful statement. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Again, this is one of those moments where it's like, I think Nebuchadnezzar got it. Maybe. 
I don't know. But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the real question is, as I look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, do I get it? Am I willing to deal with the pride of my own life? You know, ultimately, when we look at this passage, I think the question that we're left with is, am I willing to deal with the presence of pride in my own journey? Where are each of us invited to repent of pride? You know, as an aside, one of the things that I have loved uh, to study is just the history of how God has moved uh, throughout church history. And can I tell you again and again, I have noted that scholars and historians have pointed out a simple fact. That oftentimes what precedes great movements of God in the world are when the people of God are willing to repent of pride. When we're willing to set to the side the assumptions of God has to do things on my terms and my ways. When we set to the side the assumption that life is all about us, we discover that there is a God who is more faithful than we could ever imagine. And I wonder today, where is God maybe inviting each of us to deal with pride? Maybe for you, pride today looks like the anxiety that you're tossing and turning at night over what the next step in your life will look like. Can you trust in the faithfulness that God is good, he knows what he's doing, and that if we obey him, he'll guide us? Maybe you're here today, and pride looks like the confident assumption, hey, I've made it, I'm good. And God is inviting us to see that today we are as desperate for his grace than in the moment when we first came to know him. Or maybe you're here today and pride means being willing to be inconvenienced to step into the needs of another. It means to recognize that life isn't about you and to recognize that God, his call in this mission that we've been invited to is the single greatest invitation of this life. So today, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and as they do, um, we're going to sing a very well-known song, Be Thou My Vision. And what I love about this song is I think it is one of the ultimate prayers and remedies against pride. A cry that God would be our vision in everything, and we would see him in him alone. And as we prepare to sing that song, I, just, I want to give you a moment to simply be quiet before the Lord. Is there some area of pride that he would reveal in your journey today? Would you take that before him? Friends, pride is like a poison that sucks the joy and the life of his kingdom from our hearts. And I pray that by his mercy, he would radically deliver each of us from it today. Oh, friends, may he deliver us from looking for sapphires in the eyes of spiders. May he bring us to a place of humility. And may we know that he and he alone is worth it all.
Let's pray.